Hello, and thank you for tuning in. This podcast is a part of a Bible study series led by our local retired pastor, Dr. Dan Stinson, exploring the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and six common themes found within. This week, we focus on the theme, Imitate the Good. Now, we finish up today with looking at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John's themes, and the theme for today is Imitate the Good which really is just one verse that we're going to look at out of all of them. Uh, and it comes from 3 John. Now, John, if you read it, was written by John, who refers to himself as the elder. Right? In other words, he was a leader of some kind in the, in the congregation. Whether he was the founder or overseer, we don't really know. It's just the term meaning leader. Uh, and he writes this to a man by the name of Gaius or Gaius. And as you read it closely, what it points out, as you see in the other two letters as well, that the church is faced with a problem of division going on inside it. There's a challenge to the leadership. There's people coming and going because they either like what's going on or they don't like what's going on. Uh, There's some type of theological debate as to was Jesus fully human and fully divine? Did he have a physical body, just a spiritual body? And people were leaving over that issue. But two people in that congregation were arguing with each other and people were picking sides. So you have not only picking sides over leadership, but you're picking sides over theology. Uh, and so you have Gaius who is basically supportive of where John is coming from, he's financially and emotionally supporting the missionaries who are coming and going through that congregation. Um, but on the other hand, there's Diotrephes, right? That's I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and John says that this man, this Diotrephes, likes to put himself first. In other words, he's a narcissist individual. It's all about me. I'm first, everybody else is second. Um, And that's causing a division. That's causing tension. And so John, as he's writing to the congregation, makes the statement that we're going to examine today. This is verse 11 in John, third, third letter. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Who does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Now, I want to give you just a very brief lesson in Greek. The Greek term from God is ekthaotheo. But the other word meaning seeing God is hekathenin ton theon. And both of them imply the same thing. They are to live in the light of God's revelation in Christ. That if if you have seen God and you're walking in the light of God, if you understand who God is and how God is present in his Christ, then you are called to live a certain way. And John's implying that if one has seen God, then that person will live his or her life according to the standards and the will of God. 
as it's made known in Christ. So that's his call. Uh, and he's basically accusing Diophanes of either not having seen God or having seen God and ignoring what he should be doing. He's saying you've, you've seen God in Christ, but you live in such a way nobody else knows that. In other words, put your money where your mouth is, walk to walk and not just talk to talk. Uh, now, Fortress Commentaries, one of the commentaries I use, <clears throat> said that this section could be titled Good Gaius, Dastardly Diophanes, and Devoted Demetrius. Yeah, I kind of like that because it summarizes all what's going on there. Uh, and he talks about walking in the truth, which is synonymous with loving. Right? For John to walk in the truth is to walk in love. And he holds up Caiaphas as an example of that agape, of that love, as opposed to the other side of what's going on. So the question I have is, can you see now how John 3, in the third John, pulls all of the themes that we were looking at together? It's all summed up in what he's talking about. Uh, walking in the truth. How does one walk in the truth? Because for John, that's what it means to imitate the good. The good is what's being done as people walk in the truth. So listen to this long-winded sentence okay, that I put together. He's calling people to walk in the truth by keeping love central as you fellowship with God, as you seek and give forgiveness to self and others, keeping the unity or the hospitality amongst you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now for John, it all comes together. That... <clears throat> If you're going to walk in the truth, if you're going to walk in the light, if you're going to walk in love, then let your community reflect that. And that whenever there's a disunity going on, there's a dis-message being sent out. There's misinformation going to the community. And John's concerned that that community not have that mis-message going out. Why? Because they're evangelizing. This is early Christianity developing. New churches are being grown. Uh, pagans and Jews and Greeks are all being taught the gospel. And he wants to make sure people get the purity of the gospel, of what it actually means, not according to what other people think it means. Okay. So in that sense, John is a purist theologically. Uh, it all comes down to who is this Christ. Right. So let me stop and just questions that are raised from what we're talking about. Reflections, concerns. No, that was uh, Pastor Allen's. Remember to represent your family. Right. So if 
if we are walking in that light as Christians, then we are representing our family. Right. Right. Through Christ's family. Yeah. Uh, it's attributed to Martin Luther's wife, and it could well have been, but there's a statement that says, she said to John one time, uh, to Martin Luther one time, remember, you may be the only Bible some people will ever read. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up with being told as we were going out of the house, enjoy yourself and have fun, but don't embarrass the family. I mean, that was my father's cliche, but it was more than a cliche. It was his understanding that whatever happens with his family members reflects upon him. Whatever Christians do reflects upon Christ. Which is why that statement by Mahatma Gandhi is so painful to hear. I could have been a follower of your Jesus if it had not been for the Christians that I met. And that's, that's painful. And you've all met individuals who say, you won't see me inside a church ever. Uh, I think there's a positive flip side to that. And I put it on uh, the bulletin board at one of my churches, and some folks thought it was a great statement. Others were offended by it. It simply said, hypocrites welcome. There's always room for one more. Yeah. We got a message out. You know, uh, at least they read it. Even if they get angry at it, at least they read it. Right? Um, so what do you think of when you hear imitate the good? What does John mean when he uses the word good? What do you think of when you hear the word good? Living a Christian life. And what would that look like? It's all through all three letters. Love one another. And it seems like that's the backbone that drives all of what he's saying. Yes, absolutely. So if you start with that as being mm -hmm. foundational for a Christian life, well, now, how do you act out on that? What is, how, what's a good thing to do? How do you determine that? Well, yeah. to me, it's the spirit of, of the Holy Spirit guides you if you're open to it. Mm -hmm. And it will show you the way. He or she. The spirit is a being, therefore it's not an it. I'm, I'm serious. I'm just, just, just listen to it. We believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not person, person, it. Right? Because otherwise it just becomes an intangible. If the spirit is a being, yeah, exactly. And that's why I jokingly call it out, but I think it's significant that we, we do call it it. Yeah. yeah. We think it is like maybe going to the shelf and getting it off the shelf. You know? I'm in trouble, so let me get it for some help. <laughs> As opposed to a living presence who is with you always. Does that make sense? Okay. So what else do you think of as being good, to imitate the good? 
How do you see that being lived out in the church? How do Christians do good today? Today, today. Today, today, today. In our lifetime, what have you seen? Building a house. Building a house, yeah, absolutely. Well, how else? Serving breakfasts. Serving breakfasts. Funeral dinners. Not just funeral dinners. You can't believe it, but I'm getting dinners twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I don't need them, I am totally appreciative of them. In fact, the first dinner it was brought in has served me for three nights. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. So. So. Uh, how else? There's one that you've all experienced and probably have been the giver of it as well. On a Sunday morning, you meet people on the way into church, and the first thing they ask you is, how are you doing? Concern from other people. And that's significant. Uh, how else do you see love at work? Through the tithe. Through the tithe. Okay, the, okay the, you know, the giving of something monetary, something tangible. All right. Hospitality, one of Hospitality. the big themes of these epistles. Right. You know, the admonition to love is there. But we have to go broader than just one or two statements. And that is, you are to love the way Christ loved you. That's a hard part. Anybody can, in general, love, you know, in terms of not hurting somebody and being kind. That's a different ballgame. But what about loving somebody the way you are loved by God? And let's be honest, you know, all of us know that whoever said it was right, that we're all a little bit like the moon, there's a dark side to all of us, right? We all have that hidden closet where you hope nobody ever opens up and sees what we're really thinking at this moment. Um, can we love people when we know their dark side? We're loved even when we do unlovable things. Yep. But, can, but can we love somebody else who is unlovable? That's the test. You know, it's easy for us to know that we love God. But taking the next commandment to love the way God loves in Christ, that's a little bit more difficult for us. Because we tend to look at that person through the eyes of culture. What does my neighbor say about that person? How will I be seen by other people if I associate with that person? That becomes more difficult. Uh, I've had people come to me for counseling over the years, and they share with me some situation that they had in their family, and other advice that they received from their friends was, just cut them off, just get rid of them. Just don't bother with it. Just tell them enough is enough. Is that loving? The way Christ loves? Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute we become a doormat. But you know, there's a, it doesn't mean that 
right? But can you at least lay it aside enough to treat that person as a possibility of being changed by God? No, no. That's why I love that statement. Please be patient with me. God isn't finished yet. <laughs> no. Uh, nobody's finished. Nobody's a finished product. That's what life is for. Round out the rough edges. No. Uh, and I think that's the hardest part of truly loving. Can you love someone who you diametrically oppose in everything that they say and do? We tend to love with conditions attached. I asked somebody one time, and they were very offended by it, but it was a, a question that I thought needed to be answered. I said, if this was 1943, could you love Adolf Hitler? Right? Yeah. That's where the real test comes, isn't it? It's easy to love somebody you agree with most of the time. But when we have barriers of our own making, that love becomes more difficult. Question? Oh, okay. All right. Um, so then what are one or two or three of the things you've learned from this study? Okay, and how would that? How would you do that? <clears throat> Just if you change the setting from, you know, the first century of the church to mm -hmm. the twenty-first century of right. the church. Okay, can you be specific as to what you're thinking of when you when you say that? What John was trying to get across, you know, stay in the light, follow the truth, imitate the good. Is that message any different now than it was then? And probably more desperately needed yeah. now than then. <laughs> well, well, you could put uh, contemporary names in here or a contemporary setting, and right. it still works. Yeah. Very I think that's, relevant. Yeah, I think that's why the Bible is still used as much as it is, because it does speak to today. It wasn't written to today, but it speaks to today. Somebody once said it travels through history well. Yeah. That's a good way of phrasing it. I don't know about you. I was, it was easy to read. Yes. Or I, I could pick up things through there that other books, I'm like, huh? This, this was current yeah. and easy. Yeah. Not easy, but easier. Yes. Yeah. That was one of the reasons why I picked it, because we were doing some deep stuff before, and I mm -hmm. thought we all needed a little bit of mental break <laughs> of it. And this, it's easy to understand but it's hard to put in practice. Right? Um, which shouldn't surprise us. We, we tend to hear people say, if you have problems, take them to Jesus. Lay them at the foot of the cross. Right? Just come to the altar and lay your problems down with the implication being that everything's going to be fine from here on out that you're just going to be able to do everything now. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and it's true. But the reality is different in what Jesus said. He said, if you want to follow me, you've got to do three things. 
deny yourself and take up your cross. Then you can follow me. Now, a cross is different than a burden. A burden is something you endure because that's part of life. You just have to do it. A cross is something you intentionally pick up because you know it's right, even though it's painful to carry. Um, let me show you something that I, I find, at least for me, makes more sense. I'm not going to say anything to you. I, I put it up there, and you can tell me what you think. What does it say to you? If you eliminate one O, what do you have left? God. Imitate God. That's what John's saying, I think. Um, Martin Luther always talked in terms of people being little Christs. He didn't mean you're going to hang on a cross and be resurrected. He's talking about a lifestyle that demonstrates that God is in Christ and God is in you. Which is why he talked about the priesthood of all believers. That everybody who believes in, in Christ is a priest. What does a priest do? Connects humanity to God through ritual. So if we are called to be priests, then we are to demonstrate God and the goodness of God by the way we live. I think that's what John's message is. Right? Questions? If you were sitting in a room with John the Elder, what would you ask him? Only about Jesus. Okay. You notice John doesn't do that. He doesn't tell you anything about Jesus. Not really. Hmm. He's assuming <clears throat> that they know who Jesus is and that they've already had that message. And he's trying to make sure that they maintain the purity of the message. They already know it. So what do you think he'd tell you? Well, I'd encourage him to tell me that I've read your writings. I understand your philosophy. But tell me about Jesus and your everyday experience with him. Mm. What did you do all day? Okay, so you're assuming he personally knew Jesus yes. then? Yeah, okay, yes. good. All right. And what did he really, what was he really like? Yeah. Well, what do you think he was really like? Put your imagination into gear. It's hard to... If you were living today as your neighbor, what would you see in him? I was thinking he was easygoing. Was he? What makes you think that? A, a, he'd have a patience before he answered you, perhaps. I mean, okay. not always in some of the examples. He wasn't. How, long, how, many, how many times do I have to tell you? Right. But... Generally, I was thinking he had a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. That's why I think he was tired. Yeah. 
Sandy? Oh, pondering. Just pondering. Like Mary pondered these things in her heart. And isn't that really what the lifestyle of Christianity is? Is wondering about God? That we don't have the answers. We have the presence. There's a difference. We have much more. I think I will have much more questions for God if and when I ever stand there face to face and say, what was going on? What were you thinking, God? Right? That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, part of love is loving enough to raise questions. And, and let me read you a statement from... N.T. Wright, who's a retired Anglican bishop, uh, and he wrote, he wrote a commentary on every New Testament book. You know, uh, it's called the series is, you know, Matthew for everyone, you know, Mark for everyone, etc. And this is the one he he has for James, Peter, John, and, and Jude. And he makes this observation at the, towards the end of his study on John. There are some churches where people are too nice, in other words, nervous or embarrassed, to confront problems, with the result that the problems get worse and worse until people leave in disgust. John is not going that cowardly route. He is determined, if he can, to nip this problem in the bud, this problem being the division within the church, that he's not walking around it, he's not skirting it, he's walking right ahead into it and confronting it and said, hey, this isn't right. What do you think of that? It's a classic leadership technique. It's not right, it's not right. The faster you confront it, faster you fix it. Yeah. You can have a common cold or you can wind up with pneumonia. It kind of decides on what you want to do with it. Uh, but we've grown up, I think most of us have grown up in churches where everybody's supposed to be polite and agree and not rattle, you know, don't rock the boat type thing. And we're uncomfortable and very ill at ease when there's an issue that has to be confronted. We choose sides and we get angry or we say this one is right and everybody else is wrong type thing. Um, John ran the risk of being a troublemaker by confronting the situation. And somebody once said, if you take Paul and Peter and all the people in the Bible, we would never hire them as our pastor. We know their flaws. We know Peter was bullheaded. Paul was equally bullheaded. 
Now, they were right and the other person was wrong. Peter couldn't hold a job for any length of time. He went from place town to town, so did Paul. He was driven out of towns. He went to prison because he disturbed the population so much. So being a Christian isn't necessarily being nice. And yet we, I think most of us grew up in churches where that was the approach. It isn't nice to do something other than nice things. My experience of 20 years of teaching at the college level is that students today are fed up with that element in the church. That's why they don't go anymore. That they say the churches are hypocritical because they know what the issue is but don't want to talk about it. And I have to say to him, I think you're right. <laughs> we are afraid to talk about some things in church. Certainly a lot of that, but also sometimes <clears throat> people in the position of authority in the church don't necessarily define what the problem is, right. and the people don't buy into it. Right. So you've got... Yeah, and, and I've said for years that the churches today are what I would call acculturated, that they come into the sanctuary with the ideas that the culture has taught them. And they want the church to verify their position, as opposed to saying, as Reinhold Niebuhr did back in the 40s and 50s, Christ transcends culture, Christ confronts culture. And you have to challenge culture if you're going to talk it within a Christian framework. That not everything, simply because our culture does it and is acceptable, doesn't make it necessarily right. <laughs> I still remember one of the women I, I dearly loved who still keeps in touch with me from a former church when the lottery was first legalized. And I, I preached a sermon on traditional methods, belief on gambling. And I used the illustration and said, you know, it's legal. That makes it right. I said, now I just want to ask you grandmothers. If your granddaughter hears that a particular state has legalized prostitution, it's now okay. Would you encourage her to be a prostitute? And she challenges, that's an unfair analogy. I said, why? How is that unfair? If one thing you believe is morally wrong and the other thing is morally wrong, how can you accept one and say it's okay because the government says yes and say it's no because the government says yes? Got to be consistent. Right? Not easy. Even now, uh, if any pastor in any church stood up and called out the immorality of certain positions of certain politicians running for certain offices, they would be accused of playing politics, even if they were doing it from a moral basis of teaching the scripture. And I, I lived through that back in the 70s. Uh, the United Methodist Church used to produce a pamphlet at national election time, at the presidential elections. And what they did was they would list the major issues of the day, whatever they may have been, 
And then they would list the Democratic platform planks, the Republican planks, and then the Methodist and Christian teaching on those issues. And we came on the flack because they accused us of favoring one side over the other. No, we were simply laying out, this is what this side is saying about these issues. You can agree with them and disagree with them. It's not up to us. That's up to you to wrestle with. We're just laying out these positions on the Democratic, the Republican, and the United Methodist position. People got upset over that. They didn't want to, that's politics. You're not supposed to mix politics and religion. Did Christ mix politics and religion? Can you think of an example? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Although that's not the intent of that story. We think it is. Show me a coin. Whose head is on it? And what's the response? Give to God that which is God's. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. So we have a list then. These things belong to God. These things belong to the government. Oh. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus understood his Torah, his writings. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Nothing belongs to Caesar. Everything belongs to God. That's a whole different story that he's getting at. That's what made him radical. That's why I've never preached a sermon on tithing. I care if you give 10% or not. What are you doing with the other 90%? Because it's God's. It's not yours. Try that one on. <laughs> okay. I like this one comes from the Africa Bible Commentary. And the, the commentator for this particular passage comes from, from Kenya. And he's talking about doing the good, imitate the good. Good and evil cannot be hidden. As the Nandi or the Kenyan says, you cannot tie a buck's head in a cloth. The horns will stick out. <laughs> That's powerful. Right? Uh, you may say you're good, but people are going to see your horns coming out too. Right? All right? So what questions or issues were raised by this study for you as you were reading through and discussing it each week? Are there issues or questions that were raised for you? How do you, uh, he's, he's dealing with a problem with people not preaching the word. Right. His interpretation of the word. Right. Yeah. Exactly. In today's times, how do you know you're being misled versus, no, this is the truth? That's a really good question. I don't have a really good answer, <laughs> but well, I have. I think it goes to, you know, what did you? Yeah, I have one answer, and it's this. If you see in the preaching, the teaching, and the living out of the kingdom within any congregation, uh, all those things that are good are from God. 
All those things that are not God, uh, not good, are not gods. They may be humanities. They may have a very powerful voice, you know, saying these things, doing these things. But if it's not consistent with God's love, then it's not consistent with the gospel. And that, that's always been my guide when I prepare, prepare a sermon. Does the love of God show through what's being said? Or does it simply buy into everybody else's prejudices? And I spend as much time meditating on text as I did writing sermons. Because I don't have all the answers. I know more of the questions than I do the answers. I know where the answer lies, and that's in a relationship with God and Christ. But that's different to me giving you an answer on a question. So I'm, I have never been one who believes that you should spoon-feed people. You do at first when they're infants, but there comes a point where Christians have to grow up and start thinking and start chewing on meat and not just pablum. And the meat is, there are serious issues that we have to address. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> So does that make sense? Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong for a pastor to preach a sermon one week and go back the next week and say, I really messed up last week. I said this, but you know, in re retrospect, that was way off base. Yeah, I've done it. When spirit convicts you, you, you have to listen to it. You may have done all the research, but when you got it all together, it was more about you than about God. And so you just have to own up to it and go forward. See, pastors, first and foremost, are people. We all have our own flaws. But everybody's attempting to point to the perfection of Christ, not of, of themselves. You know, so I've always said that God definitely has a sense of humor. When I look in the mirror and I thank God, you chose me to be a pastor. What were you thinking? You know me. Why would you ever think I could do this? Yeah. So for me, when, when I hear this text, you know, to imitate good, it simply means be a Christian. Recognize that you're fallible. Recognize that sometimes you have to apologize. Recognize that sometimes you're right and everybody else is wrong and you just got to live with that reality. And other times you have to live with the reality is that everybody else is right and you're wrong. You know, most of life is not black and white. Most of life is lived in the gray zone. And so I've learned I don't believe in de publicly debating on theological issues. Life's too short for that. I think our job as Christians is to reassure people that whatever the issue is, you will have what you need to get through it and to grow through it, not just go through it. That life's to be lived. And sometimes you're going to get it right, and sometimes you're not going to get it right at all. And doing good is to support that person as they go through whatever they have to go through.
That for me, Christianity is all about relationship, not doctrines and creeds. Um, I didn't always believe that. I grew up in a very conservative church. I grew up with some very conservative ideas. And in the real world, for me, at least the world I was in, that doesn't cut it. Because I don't walk the same walk the other person does. I didn't have the same life experience that they had. So I can't judge them on the basis of my experiences. I can listen to theirs and then look for similarities and, and differences. But there's no way, I don't know what to tell somebody what to do. I have a hard enough time just figuring out what I'm supposed to do. But I can listen. I can say, come now, let us reason together. Let's come before this in prayer. Uh, one of my favorite parishioners, in fact, in the book I'm writing, she's part of one of my chapters. Uh, whenever there was a problem in the church, and I have served churches in crisis since 1978. That's basically all I did. And this, this was a difficult church. And I would go to her. And even when she was dying of cancer, she would have me come in every day at her bedside, and she wanted to know what was going on in the church. And her response has always been the same. I don't know the answer, Dan. So let's pray ourselves through it and pray the church through it. And we would have prayer, and somehow or other, we would find some direction. Not all of it. But without her, I probably would have reverted back to, well, what does the book say to do? You know, what does this book tell you to do? Now, what does God tell you to do? And sometimes you need a fellow traveler who can say, what's that hole that's coming up? I just tripped into it. You don't want to do the same thing. Or take a look at that view. That, to me, is what Christianity is all about. And I forget who said it, but one of the definitions of evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I like that. And the more you walk together, the more scenery you see, because you now have four eyes, not just two, looking at it. That's what I think John is trying to get across in these three letters to the congregation. Could be wrong, but that's how I summarize it. All right. So this brings us to a close of these six weeks. We'll take a two-week break, and then we're going to start looking at what were they thinking.